the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar, and Perez the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Ram, and Ram the father of Amminadab, and Amminadab the father of Nashon, Nashon the father of Salmon, and Salmon the father of Boaz by Rahab, and Boaz the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed the father of Jesse, and Jesse the father of David the king. And David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah, and Solomon the father of Rehoboam, and Rehoboam the father of Abijah, and Abijah the father of Asaph, and Asaph the father of Jehoshaphat, and Jehoshaphat the father of Joram, and Joram the father of Uzziah, and Uzziah the father of Jotham, and Jotham the father of Ahaz, and Ahaz the father of Hezekiah, and Hezekiah the father of Manasseh, and Manasseh the father of Amos, and Amos the father of Josiah, and Josiah the father of Jeconiah, and his brothers at the time of the deportation to Babylon. And after the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel, and Shealtiel the father of Zerubbabel, and Zerubbabel the father of Abiad, and Abiad the father of Eliakim, and Eliakim the father of Azor, and Azor the father of Zadok, and Zadok the father of Akim, and Akim the father of Eliad, and Eliad the father of Eleazar, and Eleazar the father of Methan, and Methan the father of Jacob, and Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. So, all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations, and from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations, and from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. This far we read from God's word. Much like the love of a man is expressed in dramatic manner in which he proposes to a woman, Matthew's list of names as a family history or what we call a genealogy reveals the love of God for us. The, the love of the triune God, our Savior, which has ex- been expressed in a well-planned, long-expected, historic, expensive manner. Through all the generations of God's people, this gift has been planned. That's drama. That's beautiful drama. This is the story of God's love for his people. You might not think that a list of names contains much value or much of a story, but this one does. It shows how the book of Matthew starts. It shows how the New Testament starts. And it gives us the backstory leading up to how Christmas started. When people think of Christmas, when when you think of Christmas, it's easy to think only of Jesus, who is the Savior. When instead, it's a story about the triune God who is our Savior. That God the Father is behind this and God the Spirit is as much in the story. The Father, Son, and Holy Spirit is God our Savior. So we need to see all three persons of the Trinity in the nativity story, and they're in our passage. In other words, Christmas is actually an action of all three persons of the Godhead, our Savior of all generations. It brings me to my main point. This genealogy points to the long-expected Jesus and the eternal Trinity. We'll see it in three points. We obey the King for he, the Son, for, uh, for he's the King. We trust the Father for his promises were fulfilled, and we receive the Spirit for he anointed the Son and adds to this family tree. So first, we obey the Son because he's the King, our Savior. He's revealed here as Son of David. 
king of the Jews, king of kings, the king of heaven and earth. In verse 1, we read the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David. And again, in verse 6, Jesse, the father of David, the king, and so on, leading down to Jesus Christ. As we know from the end of the book of Matthew, this is how it begins, but think of the end. It's bookends to the book of Matthew. Matthew chapter 28, verses 18 to 20. The later, now crucified and risen, King Jesus said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, do what? Go to all nations and keep on teaching them to observe or to obey all that King Jesus has commanded. So he's the king of all nations from the start of the book of Matthew to the end of the book of Matthew. And therefore, Christmas means that we must obey Jesus. And that fact that verse 1, the very first thing that Jesus is, a, is about is that he's the son of David is a reference, of course, to King David and therefore a reference to Jesus being the rightful heir and king who descended from the line of David. But Christmas is not just about a baby, but about one who is born king. It's about the one who continues to be king and lives forever. He will be king forever because he lives forever. He's the king of all nations, even king of heaven and earth, the ruler, the master, the head of the church. He makes the decisions. He calls the shots. He superintends our very lives. So you have a king, a personal king. It's why we look back and celebrate Christmas, because this is the arrival of our king. We do what he says. Obedience is personal and mandatory. He now sits on the throne as the exalted king. I think of how personal this can get. This is about you obeying Christ. I remember that at the start of my vacation last week, my wife said to me, if you're going to both put the lights up on the house and have surgery on your hand, you might want to do the lights on the house first. I did not listen to the wisdom of my wife, and I ended up putting the lights on the house and for hours was thinking about how much I should obey the wise words from my wife, who I think was saying direction from my God to me. What do we listen about? What do we not listen about? We are people who struggle to obey wisdom. And the message of Matthew to the Jews is clear. He's here. All the Jews who have been looking after the 400 years of silence, they've been looking for the Messiah, talking about him, singing about him, waiting for him. Matthew is saying, don't miss it. Don't miss him. He's here. The son of David, the legal heir to the throne of David has arrived. It's significant that the first issue Matthew is concerned to establish in this book, the first thing he writes in the Gospel of Matthew, the first thing he writes in the entire New Testament then, is this issue of the connection between Jesus and David. It's because of the kingship issue. The Gospel of Matthew, Jesus is established first as the legal possessor of the title, the role of king of Israel, and then Jesus is also shown to be the God of Israel, both the king of Israel and the God of Israel. This is how he starts off. It's the first thing to draw our attention to. And what does that obedience look like? It looks like the Great Commission. Matthew 28, 18 to 20. Go make disciples of all nations, baptizing them and teaching them to obey King Jesus. And the Gospel of Matthew is so clear 
that even blind men can see that Jesus is king. Matthew 20, verse 30, two blind men sitting by the roadside as Jesus walked by. And this is not some stray comment. This is ironically meant to poke us. When the blind men cry out, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. Even blind men can see it's so blatantly obvious. It's the top tier, first leading mark of Matthew that Jesus is king. He's the son of David. So Matthew's genealogy is the preface to the gospel. Because then throughout the book of Matthew, he explains how Jesus died for our sins, how he rose again. That's the gospel events. Proclaiming that he's the son of David is in the genealogy, the preface. And it's also then at the end of Matthew's gospel in the application to us in the Great Commission. That's what obedience looks like. Secondly, trust the Father. God the Father, for his promises were fulfilled. The reference to God the Father is also found in verse 1 in the phrase, Son of Abraham. What does that mean? It conjures up, it reminds us of all of the promises of God the Father given to Abraham. He promised, and this God is faithful. So from the very first verse, we're called to trust God the Father, our Savior, for it was his promises, not just to Abraham, but going all the way back to Adam, and then fulfilled also in David when he sent his unique son. So we're warranted to see God the Father in the story of Christmas, going all the way back to Genesis 3.15, when the seed of the woman, we're promised, would bruise the head of the servant. It points to Jesus, the seed of the woman Mary, born of Mary, who would then go to the cross and bruise the serpent there, conquer the devil there. All of God's promises are fulfilled in Jesus. 2 Corinthians 1.20, the promises of God are yes and amen in Christ. So as we celebrate Christmas, are there promises for Christians today from God the Father that we are to be looking to, hoping in, expecting fulfillment of, rejoicing in the fulfillment of already? Yes, of course. That's one of the lessons of this passage, the lessons of Christmas, that our sins are washed away through Jesus' death and resurrection, chiefly. And then another example, the promise is that Jesus is coming again. We can Always anticipate with hope, real hope, his second coming. The second coming of the same Jesus who was promised and came the first time is encouraged by our knowledge that he came the first time. He was promised and he came. Now he's promised to come again. So we have good reason to hope that he's coming again. The last Christmas, if you will, the last coming of Christ is yet ahead of us. Math, uh, Revelation 22, verses 7 and 12 and 20, Jesus himself put it this way, Behold, I am coming soon. It's a lesson that the Father has fulfilled his promises through his Son and will be fulfilled again through his Son. If I could try to illustrate, the, remember the, the famous potato famine, a time of starvation and disease in the 1840s in Ireland. The people lost a sense of meaning. They were so beaten down. There just wasn't any food except potatoes, and they were short of that. A million people died of starvation in Ireland in the 1840s. But the real problem was hopelessness. Who could they trust for the future? When would they ever get out of this? It was devastating to them psychologically, spiritually, morally, personally, vocationally, and the government saw that the depression was the, the issue they needed to face, so they saw the depression developing, 
and they came up with an idea. They would hire men to build roads, and they would pay the men, and then the men would have food, and then they, they could start to work on addressing the hunger issues. So they got started. Started building a road. Hired men after men, teams of men building the road. Only one problem. The government did not have an answer to the question, where does this road go? And when the men building the roads found out the answer is, the road goes nowhere, they became depressed all over again. Who wants to work on a road that goes nowhere? God the Father made a promise that was initially fulfilled at the first Christmas. And if you say, that's all fine and good, the first Christmas, but what do I have lately? What do I have next month? What do I have next year? What can I look forward to going forward from here? Where does this all go? First Christmas, we're always looking back. But if you have no future, if you have no today, if you have no tomorrow, then this is the problem. We're not trusting God the Father, that his promises are fulfilled the first time, his promises will be fulfilled the next time. Initially fulfilled at the first Christmas ought to encourage us to trust God the Father for our current condition. This is going somewhere. Philippians 1, verse 6, Paul puts it this way, He who began a good work in you, God the Father, will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Philippians 1, 6. So when Jesus comes again, which is the day of Jesus Christ, his second coming, the last Christmas, when Jesus comes again, God the Father will show us where this has all been going since the first Christmas and in our lives. We can trust that God the Father will carry out his promises from the first Christmas to the last Christmas, from Adam to Christ, from the Garden of Eden to the cross, to the empty tomb, to our home in heaven. If you'll allow me to put it this way, without you misunderstanding me, we can trust God the Father for Christmas past, Christmas present, and Christmas future. That Christ is our hope for the future. Christmas is God the Father saying to us, you can have hope that I will take you through this, through my promises in my Son. Thirdly, our third point, receiving the Spirit, for he anointed the Son and adds to this family tree. The reference to the Holy Spirit is also here. If you look in verse 1 where it says Christ, verse 16 where it says Christ, the word Christ or Messiah literally means anointed one. With what was Christ anointed? Which, with what was Jesus Christ anointed? Not with oil or water or even a dove, but rather what came down like a dove, the Holy Spirit himself. The lesson is from the, even the title Christ that we can receive God the Spirit, our Savior, for it is he who anointed God the Son, Christ Jesus, by his Spirit brings merciful regeneration to spiritually dead people and brings us into the family tree by faith. Matthew would later record Jesus saying it this way in Matthew 9, 13, I came not for righteous, but for sinners. This gospel is a gospel of beginnings. It's hope engendering. Verse 1, the first phrase is the book of the genealogy. The word genesis means beginning. The root meaning of the word genealogy is beginning. Genesis 1.1, in the beginning. We call it the book of Genesis because of this. God created. God started something. And here Matthew is saying, God is starting something. Again, this is as significant and as important as God creating the world in the first place. First he creates, then he redeems. 
In Genesis 1-2, the same Spirit who hovered over the face of the deep waters and darkness and formlessness and void in order to bring about the creation is the same Spirit who then overshadowed the womb of the Virgin Mary and took the second person of the Trinity and gave him the start of a human body within her. The same Spirit anointed Jesus as King and equipped him for the work, the, the, the redemptive work of dying for us on the cross and rising again. This same spirit was sent by Jesus from heaven to earth to hover over spiritually dead people ever since Pentecost in Acts 2 and to make us alive in Christ by faith. We call this regeneration. So you see what we have? Genesis, genealogy, regeneration. It's God at work bringing life. The Holy Spirit is the life giver. He created the family of God. The list that we see here are our brothers and sisters by faith we will see in heaven. This is the family of God tree. He created it and now brings us into it. This is your family. You are in this family tree. This is your genealogy, your history. This is your future. Romans 8.11 If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. We're drawn into the genealogy specifically in verse 16 because we are in Christ. The Apostle Paul wrote 166 times in the New Testament the phrase, in Christ. It's centrally and magnificently important that you are in Christ by faith. We are in this story. We are in the Christmas story. We are in the genealogy by faith. It means that we have found mercy in Christ. It means that in Christ, there's neither Jew nor Greek. There's no racism. There's there's no um, going against one gender or another. Nothing would keep us together but Christ. There's no pride in Christ. We're all sinners in need of the mercy of God in Christ. He came not for the righteous, but for sinners. Not for the nice, but for the naughty. Which are you? God's mercy is seen in the genealogy. First of all, there are five women in the family tree. How do I say this to you, but just straight up bluntly the facts? In the first century, Jewish genealogies did not include women. They only wrote about men, but Matthew includes women. And God is telling us something because of the Holy Spirit who carried Matthew along to write these words. It's God saying something to us in this genealogy. The Christmas story, including women, tells us something about God. It tells us that women are the great-great-grandmothers of Jesus. And it also tells us that women are the children of God by faith in Jesus. That that's the New Testament church. Not only that, but these four women were not Jews. Again, most Jewish genealogies would strive as their goal to show purity from Gentile contamination. This is how Jewish we are. This is how pure we are. To actually list Jews who are also women is radical. His genealogy goes out of its way to show Gentile inclusion. Why? God's mercy. Verse 3, Tamar. Verse 5, Rahab. Verse 5, Ruth. Verse 6, the wife of Uriah, we know her name, Bathsheba. Matthew is communicating to us in the New Testament church that God's church is filled with mercy. It's an interracial work. All races are welcome and included. That God's church is intercultural and international. 
And on top of that, Matthew is showing that these women, who are actually scandalous, if you don't know your Bible well enough to know the names that I stated, they have a place in God's church through the mercy of Jesus Christ. Jesus not only saved sinners, but Jesus came through scandalous sinners in his family tree. The Holy Spirit anointed, the Holy Spirit anointed Jesus into the womb of a sinner. Yes, Mary was a sinner who would later be saved by her son through mercy. Also consider who's missing from the genealogy. Where's Sarah? Where's Rebecca? Where's Rachel? Where's Leah? If you're going to include some women's names, don't you think you'd start with those? What are you doing, Matthew? Where are the matriarchs? If you were putting the patriarchs in, where are the matriarchs? Matthew has intentionally replaced the matriarchs with front-page sinning women. Well-known, scandalous women in the list. Why? Mercy of God is forefront. It's as if we have four new matriarchs. The emphasis in God's church is God's mercy to sinners. Matthew's even preaching the gospel, reading roll call. He hasn't even started yet. Wait till he gets to the rest of his book. Where's the dramatic flair in the list of names? Well, think about what they actually are. It's Tamar the Canaanite. It's Rahab the Jerichoite. It's Bathsheba the Hittite. And it's Ruth the Moabites. Gentile blood intersects the line from Abraham to Jesus. King David himself had a Canaanite great-great-great-grandmother, a Jerichoite great-great-grandmother, a Moabite great grandmother, and a Hittite wife. So what, you say? By God's overruling providence, he makes sure that his church is intercultural, international, and interracial. And these four, first four women were uncustomary, even scandalous. Few Christian parents choose to tell their children again and again with great detail the stories of Tamar and Rahab and Bathsheba as positive moral instruction. Am I right? Matthew seems to have found the most questionable ancestors of Jesus to include in this list in order to preach the gospel of mercy. The modern equivalent would be to tell you that Jesus is related to Monica Lewinsky. Christian biographers would go out of their way to inform us that you're related to someone like Jonathan Edwards or Martin Luther Who would go out of their way to list that one of your relatives by this exact line is related to a scandalous person? But here in the family history of Jesus Christ, first page, initial story, God is making it clear and emphasizing that he can overcome and forgive sin, that he can use sinners who repent and are in Christ by faith to accomplish great purposes in this day and in human history and in salvation future. These four scandals preach the gospel of divine mercy, which is Matthew's whole purpose for writing. Matthew 9.13 again, Matthew records Jesus himself saying, I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners. It raises an important question for us as we think this through and wrap it up. What does Christmas mean? Does Christmas mean Jesus coming to call all sinners to himself? 
the already in the introductory genealogy, we see that Jesus came not only for sinners, but through a family line of sinners. The first Christmas was not the first time God began to stoop into the mess of human history. All the way through the Old Testament, we see God stooping into the world's sinful mess and the mess of his people's lives. We saw it all through Jeremiah, have we not? It just briefly mentions here deportation. There's a whole story behind that. The character trait of God is mercy. It means that God comes to us though we don't deserve him to come. He has come for us. But look at the lot of us. He has come for us. We ought to just celebrate and celebrate and celebrate. Praise be to God that Christmas Day and all the weeks leading up to Christmas Day is not the only time he shows his mercy, but it's the wonderful, beautiful start of the story. Thank God he's, he's not like so many Americans who only give gifts around Christmas time and end of the year. They all of a sudden become aware of charities. Some Christians even give sacrificially. But is that what Christmas is all about? Find a heart, give a little. The book of Matthew answers just 12 chapters later in Matthew 12, 7. God says about giving, I desire mercy, not sacrifice. We're not supposed to just give a little. We're not supposed to just make ourselves feel better. We're supposed to go after people. Teach them about God, about obedience to him, about his forgiveness, and never give up on people. And God leads us by example in our passage today. Through mercy, these four women, and through these four women, God highlights his mercy in the genealogy. If we get the gospel, when Jesus is only being described in terms of his family history, and Matthew's only copying down a list of names of the ancestors of the Messiah, we learn something about Matthew's writing throughout the rest of his book. He's always going to be proclaiming mercy to sinners through Christ himself. That's central to Christmas. That's what Christmas is. There's hope for us. There's real hope for us. There's joy. There's light. Things are looking up. It's going to be all right. That's the message of Christmas. So the application is the same three points you've seen. Obey the Son, for he's the King. Trust the Father, for his promises were fulfilled. Receive the Spirit, for he anointed the Son and adds to the family tree. The gospel, we must conclude, is for men and women. It's for Jews and Gentiles. It's for upstanding women and for prostitutes. It's for the free and for slaves. It's for management and for the working class. It's for the veteran and the hippie. It's for the policeman and the perpetrator. The gospel of mercy that Matthew preaches, that God himself has given us through his apostle Matthew, if we learn anything from the very start of the book, which looks like just an introduction to be skipped over or ignored, if we have learned anything about the start of this book, we've learned about God being a God of mercy. Matthew writes that. Matthew communicates that. It's for absolutely everyone, absolutely anyone, who will turn to this Lord Jesus, trust in him, trust in his Father, receive his Spirit, and repent and obey him. He is our King, after all. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven,